You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's podcast. Before I introduce our guest, I want to remind you all about my new free four-part video series on the science and soul of building resilience. And if you're interested, you can find more in the episode notes. I'm so thrilled and honored to welcome Laura Liu to the show this week. Laura is a graduate student studying clinical psychology in San Francisco, California, and currently resides in Vancouver, Canada. She originally is from Taiwan and immigrated to Canada at a young age and graduated from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver in 2017, and since that time has worked in a variety of clinical and research settings. Due to Laura's personal academic and professional experiences, she is extremely passionate about incorporating a culturally sensitive lens on mental health. Right now, Laura is conducting research looking at the effects effects of adult and child trauma, trauma treatments, and intergenerational trauma, which is trauma that is passed down from generation to generation. Laura is dedicated to mental health advocacy, posts about mental wellness tips and musings on Instagram, and is a guest speaker for a variety of workshops on mental health. You can find her primary account on Instagram at mindhealthspot, and she also co-moderates another Instagram account called the alliedminds.co, which is a social justice and mental health oriented account, and I highly encourage you to follow her her if you are not already following her because the content that she and her colleagues curate curate is extremely valuable and informative and empowering. Laura is really committed to helping others thrive in mental wellness through tools such as mindfulness, grounding, self-compassion, somatic attunement, and exploring feelings. So welcome, Laura. Thanks again so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. (laughs) great to have you. So before we launch into more specifics about what we wanted to share with you all today, we thought it would be helpful to start by just sharing a bit about how we came to collaborate on this episode. And both Laura and I have been doing a lot of thinking in our lifetimes, and especially in the past year, about patriarchy and capitalism and ways in which both of these systems have affected us personally and brainstorming ways in which we ourselves can heal from some of the negative effects of of these systems and have also been thinking a lot about how they affect 
our loved ones and our clients and people around us and how as mental health practitioners, we can best support people in that healing. And so we wanted to collaborate in offering some of our reflections and insights with you all this week. And Laura, I want to give you the opportunity to share anything that you'd like to share about how we came to this topic and and to collaborate together. Yeah, I think it's so wonderful. Um, And thank you so much, Melissa, for reaching out to me um, about this, because I have noticed on both of our accounts, actually, that um, we are active in talking about how these systems impact our mental health, um, how these systems impact our psychology. Um, And one thing that I feel really happy about that the field is moving towards is recognizing that our mental health and our psychology cannot be separated from the systems that we live in. Um, And so, yeah, two of these systems that we want to talk about is the patriarchy and is capitalism. Um, And how can we really combat these systems um, and the effects that capitalism and the patriarchy have on our psychology? And then how can we combat them in other people as well. Um, So I'm honored to speak about this. um, And yeah, I just want to, um, yeah, maybe you wanted to have a chance to define some of these terms before we jump in. Yeah. And as you said, Laura, I think it's important to highlight that these are two of the many systems that Mm. affect us all and lead us to internalize in a deep way some of the messages from these systems. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about some specific ways in which we've observed that in ourselves and other people. So in terms of these two systems that we'll be talking about today, we wanted to lift up some definitions of each of them, which come from Wikipedia. And capitalism per Wikipedia is defined as an economic system which tends to be based on private ownership of the means of production and their operation for profit. And so capitalism means a whole lot of things, but for our purposes today, some central characteristics of capitalism that are relevant to this conversation include accumulation, capital accumulation, competitive markets, private private property and the recognition of property rights and wage labor. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to add to that definition, Laura? Um, I think you spoke about it beautifully. Thanks. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. And then patriarchy is a social system in which men hold primary power and tend to predominate in roles of political leadership, moral authority, social privilege, and control of property. And some patriarchal societies are also patrilineal, meaning that property and title are inherited by the male lineage. So, of course, these are two complex topics, but that's our, that's the prevailing definition that we're working from today. Mm-hmm. One thing that I also want to mention is that um, these two systems, like other systems that we have in society, are also interconnected as well. So capitalism feeds into the patriarchy, and I believe the patriarchy really feeds into capitalism. Um, and I'm sure we'll unpackage that in a little bit. Yeah, that's a great point that it's it's pretty impossible to parse out the singular effects of each because they are so interconnected. And I think mm-hmm. 
part of what can be somewhat empowering about that, because I know that can feel kind of overwhelming too, (laughs) that they're hard to separate, is that I do think our individual healing is tied to our collective healing. As you said earlier, that, that we all share in the being affected by these systems. And so our healing doesn't have to be individualistic either. And that is one way of actually fighting against some of these systems is to take a more collectivistic approach, which I know we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about. Mm, Absolutely. So we are going to try our best to cover these topics in a comprehensive way while also not buying into this capitalistic mentality of cramming in as much as possible in a short amount of time. So we have done some thinking about the ways in which we see, as Laura said, this interconnection of the patriarchy and capitalism as leading to a lot of problems or challenges that we have personally faced and again have seen in those around us. And so as some examples, just to get us started, Laura and I have thought a lot about how these systems contribute to very narrow definitions of our worth and overemphasis on our appearance and at times very unrealistic standards of beauty and what it means to be beautiful Negative comparisons and a sense of competition and hierarchy, stereotypes that are really harmful and get perpetuated, a tendency to not invest in ourselves or our communities, so really foregoing our needs and dreams and desires because of self-judgment and self-invalidation, fitting a certain certain mold or failing to speak our truth or be who we are because we feel like we need to fit into some of these narrow definitions. We've also talked a lot about imposter syndrome, ignoring our intuition, suppressing emotions, not observing limits, engaging in a lot of self-blame and taking responsibility for aspects of our behavior that are very influenced by these systems perfectionism, and conditional ideas about happiness. So those are some of the of the problems or challenges that we'll try to talk about today. So Laura, I'd love to start with your thoughts or um, one, one of these themes or topics that you've encountered in your life, you've seen in those around you that feels really important to lift up and to give voice to in our conversation today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gosh. I could start with so many things. Um, I think one thing that I'm really feeling lately is this idea of productivity. Um, And for me, I'm really feeling that in this, um, this time that we're living in where there is a lot of social unrest, where there is a lot of um, call to action. And I think, you know, being, active and being allies and, you know, not wanting to just be complacent in um, how we are and how we exist as human beings is really, really important. But one thing I think that is hard to separate out from capitalism is productivity, not just in our workspaces, but also in our personal lives. Um, So as I said before, I'm really seeing it a lot in um, the way I uh, put pressure on myself to 
constantly produce as a creator, um, some of the ways in which, you know, we can help people that are being oppressed, we can help people that are, um, you know, being racially discriminated against or um, have these acts of violence um, perpetuating on them. Um, and remembering that as human beings, part of allyship and part of, um, you know, doing our part is also not burning out. Um, so there's different layers to unpack there, but I definitely think that one big theme that capitalism um, is, and the patriarchy, frankly, is um, really present in my life is how we can, or at least I can um, do the important work that I feel called to do without burning out, um, giving myself permission to rest, giving myself permission to, um, you know, get in touch with my body and lean in and ask myself, um, you know, am I sacrificing my own needs? Um, yeah, am I sacrificing my own needs for this idea of producing more? I, I love so much about what you said, Laura. And like you said, I think there are just so many layers that we could unpack. And, and one thing that came to mind for me as you were talking was how in this past year in particular, as you said, with so much social unrest and the stressors related to the pandemic, people are under a lot of strain. And yet there is this pressure to be growing and evolving. And, and yes, as you said, on the one hand, it can be important to figure out ways in which we can live more consistently with our values. And for many people, that does mean maintaining some kind of connection to activism and advocacy. And, and at the same time, also leaning into this idea that we don't need to be growing all the time, that that isn't necessarily the ideal and really nurturance and self-care is a part of not only railing against some of these systems and some of the harmful ideals that they promote, but is also a part of being advocates and also, um, I guess, balanced keepers of ourselves <laughs> and tending yeah. to our bodies and our vessels and it, it serves us to take that time and it serves other people as as well. And yet, as you know, we both talk about how it can be helpful to have a, a growth mindset where we're working on ourselves and not being perfectionistic about it. And at the same time, that can become another form of producing and doing that is not helpful. Yes, definitely. I love how you said balance keeper of ourselves. That so resonates with me. Um, and one of the things that I'm realizing as we talk about this is that um, urgency is a value of capitalism. Mm -hmm. It to feel like we need to do things really fast. We need mm -hmm. to put out something really, really quickly. We need to work on ourselves and, and constantly grow and evolve and, you know, become and produce. Um, yeah, that really is a message that capitalism tells us that uh, we need to do it now, otherwise it's not valuable. Mm -hmm. um, and so one thing that I've really learned is, is really resisting that urgency, um, remembering, you know, the example that I brought up about um, yeah, just uh, advocating for social justice, advocating for certain causes. Um, it is a marathon and not a sprint. Mm -hmm. 
And it, as you said, I think it also ties into some of the messages we get from the patriarchy as well about our worth being contingent upon perhaps how well are we taking care of other people and tending to other people's needs at the expense of ourselves. And I think that's another great example of how these two systems promote each other and intertwine in a way that can be really really harmful and set these unrealistic expectations for what's even humanly possible. I think so often we have this sense of just because we can, we should. And so I think that's also a part of this and really just pushing, pushing, pushing and being in this grind and, and not having this balance of ourselves and other people. So, so I do think that that's another a big element that, that I've noticed in my own life and, and other people's as well. Yeah, totally. And it's unbalanced, you know, it's unbalanced in the sense that, um, certain genders, females Mm -hmm. should be taking care of other people at the expense of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do believe, as you said, Melissa, um, that, yeah, pushing against that and resisting that and remembering to check in with ourselves and our own needs and honoring our own needs is radical for Mm -hmm. us. You know, it is pushing against these systems that are in place that pressure us to do otherwise. Mm -hmm. And I do think it requires such attunement to the subtle ways in which we may be operating with that mentality without necessarily realizing it. I think you and I have talked a lot about thinking of rest as a reward for productivity and how sometimes we can fall into that trap. Oh, I can, I can take a break once I finish this task. Even that may not seem like that much of a deal breaker, so to speak, or that harmful, but enough of those micro moments that accumulate over time, I think can really have profound impacts, not just in the delaying of the rest and nourishment, but also in terms of the messages that we're sending to ourselves and other people and the ways in which that gets reinforced. And it also kind of perpetuates this unrealistic expectation that it's possible when, when people see us doing that, whether it's our kids, whether it's our peers, whether it's family members and loved ones, I think it, I can just reinforce this idea that it's possible when it actually isn't. <laughs> At some point, our, our tank gets empty and that can lead to additional challenges yeah, as well. For sure. I love how you brought in our spheres of influence, you know, our kids, our peers, the people that we work with, I think that what we do with ourselves does have huge impact on how we affect our community in these interpersonal ways, right? And so when we remind our kids or our peers that, hey, you know, we're human beings and human beings are allowed to rest. In fact, it's inherent in our humanness to rest. And it doesn't have to be conditional upon how much I produce or how much I've done in a day that also reaffirms their identities as human beings, right? And that's really how we influence the system from the inside out. That's I, I love that, Laura, because I think, again, there are small, quote unquote, small, because they might feel small, but they're not actually that small, ways in which we can live out these ideals that counter these systems. So I'm thinking about, as, as a parent, we so often interact with our kids in a way that we try to validate the effort they put into something as opposed to 
you know, natural intelligence, so to speak. Like we're trying to foster this sense of like, you know, that it's, that it's okay to have to work at something and to not be naturally gifted at something. And so I'm also thinking about ways in which we can not only validate children, but again, peers and colleagues and loved ones around, oh, I think that's so amazing that you took that time to rest, or Mm -hmm. I love how you took a break. That's really inspiring me, like paying attention to what we praise and validate and lift up in other people, as opposed to valorizing the all-nighters or the not sleeping. And again, I I think there are are some ways that might seem small that we can counter this, these messages and these systems, but aren't actually that small because I do think they can make a meaningful difference. Yeah, absolutely. They have such a ripple effect. Mm -hmm. And Laura, do you have other thoughts about, I know we've, we've woven in some ideas and strategies about when people notice themselves engaging in, understandably, because again, we are all affected by these systems. We've all internalized some of these beliefs Mm -hmm. and messages and ideals to some extent. Um, But when people find themselves noticing, oh, right, I think I am rewarding myself with rest or making it contingent upon productivity, or I am kind of buying into this idea that I can do it all, all the time without resting, what kinds of strategies have you found helpful in your life or seen those around you, you use? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I first want to address the point that it's never, that process is never going to be complete. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't mean that in kind of a hopeless way. I think as human beings, even the people that, you know, preach this stuff about how um, rest is so important for our humanness, about how we need to resist these structures um, that do affect our psychology. Um, Remembering that everyone struggles with these um, ideas and uh, some of these internalized messages. So I hope that that is a message of self-compassion and self-forgiveness when you know, you find yourself struggling with those, um, because I certainly do. And I certainly will, yeah, will for a while, right? Um, The other thing I really find helpful for me personally, um, is really reflecting on where these messages come from. Um, And, you know, I think that a lot of our conversation so far today has been really helpful to recognize like, oh, some of these messages that you can only rest once you've been productive for X amount of time, or you have to give everything or everyone your all before you give yourself some love. Um, Those things really come from the systems that exist around us. And I think it's really valuable for me personally to remember that it's not me It's not the individual that's deficit, or it's not the individual that isn't enough, that's not doing enough, that's not producing enough, Um, but it is the systems that are causing these messages to be ingrained in our minds, right? So recognize and understanding and even stopping a thought when we're um, realizing that we're thinking in a certain way, like, oh gosh, I'm so lazy. Oh gosh, I'm such a bad mother or a bad daughter for not doing this. Um, And recognizing that this is a voice that doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. It, it doesn't come from the human side of you. It, it comes from the systems that exist around us. 
Um, and I, I want to quote um, or I want to mention Sonia Renee Taylor here. I attended a wonderful webinar um, and she is the she's brilliant. She's the author of um, a book. You're nodding right now. I can mm -hmm. see you recognize, um, the body is not an apology. Um, and she really talks about how we are able to give back the shame and the voices that don't belong to us, right? That we're able to take that from within us and give them back. Um, and remembering that our self-worth and our self-love is in there it's within us but it's buried under all these conditioned messages um and so i think that's one thing that really helps me is remembering this is not my voice um pausing and resisting that um productive or capitalistic urge to um yeah to really be in a hurry um but pausing within me and saying hey where does this voice come from? Why do I think this way? Maybe it's not me. I, I really love those ideas and insights and also really appreciate you lifting up Sonia's work. And it is really powerful. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Sonia's work, I really encourage you to, to check it out because it is really, really powerful. And, and as you were talking, I, I was reminded of how much power there can be in, in the pause. Mm -hmm. And being able to take a step back and to ask ourselves, why am I making this choice right now? And to create that separation between the thought and the action. Because again, a lot of these thoughts and messages are so ingrained that in many ways, the thoughts are somewhat habitual or automatic or conditioned, as you said, Laura. And so that undoing, that deconditioning takes time. And so we can't expect for those thoughts to just stop. Yet with pause, we can make a different choice and, and understand in a deeper and more nuanced way what's guiding our behavior. Mm -hmm. And to yeah, unpack it and to think, well, why do I feel like I need to schedule six clients back to back? in a day? Or where does that come from? What is that about? And to suss out what is mine and what isn't. And I don't know if this metaphor is helpful, but I often think about it as some of the beliefs and ideals that we internalize from our families of origin, how oftentimes we believe things because that's how we grew up. And then as we get older and are exposed to different ideas, it gives us the opportunity to reflect on what are the ideals or ideas for my family of origin that I want to hold on to and which are ones that don't really resonate, don't really fit. And I feel like there's a similar parallel here where we are conditioned. Many of us grew up with many of these ideals. And even if we didn't, again, as we we're saying in the workplace and other settings, they are very valorized and emphasized. So being able to discern what are the values that really are aligned with how I want to live my life and what I want to model for other people and support other people in pursuing. And what are the ones that I've understandably taken on because of just being a human being in this, in this environment. So that I do think there is a lot of power in that pause and that ability to separate out some of the thoughts and automatic thoughts and habits from our actions. 
Yeah, definitely. I think that's such a great point that there's wisdom in the pause and that there's wisdom in looking within ourselves. And even that act, I think, goes against, you know, some of these systems. Um, for example, I do think that capitalism is a system that prioritizes a lot of appearances, mm -hmm. a lot of like, you know, nothing you do is valuable unless you have something to show for it. Um, and so when we're able to really look within ourselves and when we're able to reflect and do some of the inner work that no one can see, I think that is so, so valuable to, um, to resist, to resist the system in itself. Um, one thing that you mentioned as well that I thought was so beautiful is um, I really think that uh, a lot of these systems, the patriarchy, capitalism, a lot of them um, and what they tell us about our relationship to our worth pits our worth against other people, especially other people's appearances mm -hmm. and other people are putting out that we can see. So, for example, um, I really do think that the patriarchy pits women against women. Mm -hmm. um, it emphasizes the fact that, oh, hey, there's not enough room for all of you to be successful. So only the quote unquote best can be successful. Capitalism also operates on this scarcity mindset that, um, you know, you have to work hard, you have to uh, produce all of this to be the best. And if you have, you know, less, if you're making less money, if you're writing less books, if you're, you know, if you have um, less followers on Instagram, that means that you're not good enough. Mm -hmm. um, and so it really, yeah, it really forces this culture of competition. Um, and so I think remembering where that comes from, like where this pressure comes from, um, and remembering that this is the lie that these structures are telling us that yes, there actually is enough room for all of us in here. Um, yes, we are all worthy without these external, um, you know, value judgments on us is really, really important. Absolutely, Laura. And I, I think not only that there is enough room for all of us, but that the world is better for it. Like the diversity and expressions and voices that it adds value to take up space and to create space for each other. And like you said, to lift each other up, because I think so often with that sort of competitive, comparative scarcity mindset, that breeds insecurity and insecurity often compels us or creates the temptation to not support each other or to actively tear each other down, to judge other people, to um, sometimes get in their way. But even if it's not getting in their way, not facilitating their journey or, or that process. And so I think there is a lot of concrete action that we can engage in to, again, rail against these systems and these messages. Like you said, even thinking through how to define our own worth and coming up with our own metrics that don't necessarily involve Instagram followers or how many people commented on my post or, or my degrees or mm -hmm money or appearance. I mean, there are just so many ways in which we define worth that is influenced by these systems. And 
And I know you and I have talked about how it's such a narrow definition. And again, questioning, like, why does that have to be? Why can't it be expansive? I mean, there is research, as you know, on this idea of multiple intelligences, right? And ways in which we can define intelligence that is not narrow. And so why can't we do the same thing with our worth and think through for ourselves, what is important to me? And how can I measure my worth against that alignment with those values, as opposed to these arbitrary, in my mind, arbitrary definitions of our worth. And again, how can I support other people in, in doing the same? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, all of that is so essential. And the last part, how can we support other people that are doing the same? It really ties back into what we were talking about, about these quote unquote micro um, statements that we make. Um, but they they have a big impact um, when we're talking about parenting, for example, the way we praise our kids about, um, you know, oh, you're so well behaved or oh, you're so smart. Oh, you're such a good dancer. Um, these things that seemingly could be positive um, on the outside really affirm to children starting from a young age that their worth is in their performance, that their worth is in their grades, that their worth is in, you know, sitting still in class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't appreciate the diversity of you know, how kids can express themselves. And so you think about what happens when they constantly get these messages over and over and they grow up hearing these messages, not only from their parents, their teachers, but all of a sudden from their peers and then later on from their workplaces, like, oh, you're such a good employee. You hit this many sales this month, right? Mm -hmm. So I really think you hit on a really good point earlier about these narrow definitions of worth and these definitions of worth that are externally conditioned. Mm -hmm. Um, So we think about things like education status. We think about things like appearance, um, sexuality. We think about, um, you know, like how much we perform or how much we produce. Those things are all outside of us. Those things are things that maybe have the illusion of control, but they're not fully within our control. Um, So I really think that remembering that we are worthy just because we are human, that our worthiness comes from inside out, not not outside in is so important. I think that's a really, really powerful point. And I think something that is a trap that we can fall into like this idea that it is based on some kind of external validation or something like you said, outside of us, as opposed to from the inside out. And, and really, I think feeling into how do you embody that? Like, how do you, you might intellectually recognize that, but how do you live that out on a day-to-day basis? Or how can you really feel the truth of that in your bones, in your body? Because I think, again, when we've been conditioned in these ways, again, we can intellectually recognize it perhaps, but really feeling it and really believing it in a deeper way can take some more work. And like you said, it, it may be a lifelong practice, not in a a hopelessness inducing way, but, but in this shared humanity kind of way, like this is the conditioning that we face. This is what we're up against. And a thought that was sparked for me while you were talking is 
the extent to which patriarchy and capitalism lead us to suppress emotion and value analytic analytical thinking above and beyond intuition and more emotional intelligence, we could say like emotional awareness and connection to emotion. And I think it was something that you said about parenting that sparked the thought for me because I I remember how early I, I have a son, he identifies uh, as a boy and he uses he, him pronouns. So my son, he, I think he, I want to say he was two when I could see him fighting tears. Like he had somehow internalized this message that it wasn't okay to cry. And I saw him really fighting it. And, and like me, he's a fellow empath. He's a very emotionally sensitive being. And so we've talked a lot about the power of being sensitive emotionally and empathy is a superpower and and trying to shift the narrative almost about how we talk about emotions. And I do think as a male identified person in society up until this point, I I do think that that is part of, of the patriarchy is valuing this trait that is seen as male consistent of And of course, there are these expressions like toxic masculinity that people have used to describe some of the ways in which these ideals harm all of us, not just men um, or male identified individuals. But I guess I I just wanted to lift up this idea that that is part of what harm another part of what harms us about the patriarchy and capitalism is this prioritization of a certain type of thinking, a certain way of participating. I mean, I even think about participating in meetings in the workplace and how people who speak first and talk a lot, even that verbal expressiveness is really valorized over other forms of expression. So again, I think there's a lot intertwined in there, but many of us are conditioned to really not value intuitive thinking or making time and space for our emotions or even expressing them in workplace settings. Sometimes people judge it as quote unquote unprofessional. If people are tearful in a meeting or expressing their emotions, they don't want to be seen as overly dramatic or too sensitive. Again, all these judgy labels that I think stem from these systems. So anyways, you know, as a person, as a mom, just seeing how early some of these effects emerge is really heartbreaking and really painful and yet also I think inspiring and incentivizing to me to realize okay like this is really powerful and important work and it needs to start early and as and we have to do it as often as possible yeah wow thank you so much for sharing that story about your son it it is heartbreaking to hear that at the tender age of two these messages are getting internalized Um, And when I think about the patriarchy and I think about kind of the relationship between emotionality and the patriarchy, I really think about the history behind why these value judgments exist. Um, And, you know, in the past, women were deemed as hysterical, Mm -hmm. deemed as, you know, incapable of doing work of being productive members in society when um, they did have these emotional reactions, right? Um, So I think that really, yeah, it stems from a toxic history that we've had. And it also is so prevalent, as you said, 
in life, right? In our classrooms and our workplaces, when people get um, angry, when people get upset or sad, um, it's looked at as unprofessional. And one of the things that I really, um, yeah, that I, I, <laughs> I want to emphasize not just um, in this conversation with you, but also in my work as a future clinician is the influence of culture on some of these themes. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of cultures, uh, what you were saying about intuition, emotional intelligence, connecting back to our emotions with our body, um, these themes are really valued. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, in Western culture, they have been pushed to the side and seen as uh, weaknesses or seen as obstacles um, in our progress as a society, right? Mm-hmm. So I do think that it does take reframing one person at a time. And as you were saying, leaning into that um individuality to influence the collective is really important. And I also think that, um, yeah, it's, it, it does take a lot of hard work to affirm that emotions are not bad. You know, mm-hmm. feelings are not bad. I spent so much of my time trying to push away emotions and trying to intellectualize more um, because I saw that that was what was valued in society is this like intellectualizing. Um, and, you know, it took years and years and it's taking years and years of reminding myself and trying to get back in touch with my body and my emotions to dismantle some of these themes. Mm -hmm. I I really appreciate you sharing your personal experience, Laura, and also lifting up the influence of culture. Because again, I know, as we said, we're only talking about two systems today, but another obvious system is white supremacy and and ways in which that intersects with both of these systems that we're talking about today and is, I think, very related to what you said about there are many cultures in which there are different values and people are revered and honored and admired for things like emotional um, attunement, connection to ancestry, just so, so many different manifestations of, of intuition and other forms of knowing and wisdom and how that has gotten obliterated in many ways because of, of racism and white supremacy and, and other systems. And so I, I do think in many ways for many of us who come from certain cultural backgrounds in which that kind of wisdom is honored and revered in many ways, it's coming home to that and coming back to those roots. And, and I think another piece that, that I think a lot about too, is the extent to which over apology feeds into the reinforcement of some of these systems. And the reason why I'm bringing that up at this moment in time is I'm thinking specifically about being emotional in the workplace or this idea that, that emotions are, are unprofessional. I mean, I've noticed myself, even as someone who is highly emotionally sensitive, who gets tearful easily, when I reflect back on certain experiences, I remember myself apologizing for crying. And Mm -hmm. I've had so many clients in my office apologize for crying. So this tendency to suppress even infiltrates the therapy room, a place that we often associate with welcoming emotional expression and being a place where that is okay. And yet, 
we have that tendency to over-apologize even in that space. And for me, it's not even just about the the over-apologizing, it's also about the shame. So feeling so ashamed of ourselves that we're quote unquote too emotional or that we got tearful. And again, as you're saying, it's not just about crying. That's one manifestation of it, but it could be getting really angry. It could be a number of different emotions and emotional intensities. Um, But for me, the the over-apology is one concrete way to rail against these systems is to really be mindful of the extent to which we are over apologizing. And then if it does escape our mouths, rephrasing it, taking it back. And, um, and even the shame piece really trying to counter the shame that we feel. And as, as you know, Laura, I, I talk about this a lot. I think all emotions serve an important function and a purpose. So it's not like shame is bad. It's more, is the shame justified given the action? If I'm feeling ashamed about something that doesn't warrant shame in the sense that I didn't do anything wrong, I didn't violate a moral code, I didn't harm anyone else, is that a time to try to then regulate that emotion because it doesn't necessarily match the situation or its intensity doesn't quite match. So I don't know if you have any thoughts or reflections on on this front of emotional expression and apology and shame, but that was something that came to mind for me as you were sharing your reflections. Absolutely. I think there's so much there. Um, I think that definitely you're right. One concrete way that shame and self-blame manifests is through over-apologizing. And I noticed myself doing this, or I noticed that I have done this a lot in the past. Um, And it does, as with a lot of things that um, are worthwhile, takes a lot of practice to shift out of that self-blame mindset, to shift out of that, you know, there's something wrong with me mindset. Um, One tangible thing that I I've started to adjust is replacing my sorries with thank yous. Mm. Um, And I don't know if you've ever heard about this, uh, Melissa, but I find that instead of saying, you know, I'm sorry for X, like I'm sorry for um, talking so much, I'm sorry for venting and shifting that into thank you for listening to me. Thank you for creating a space for me. That slight shift in language actually changes our mindset from a place of shame to a place of gratitude. Um, And even these, as we were saying before, these subtle shifts in our language, the subtle shifts in how we talk to other people, um, they really create ripple effects. So with shame and self-blame, I do think that they, they stem from systems like the patriarchy and like capitalism, where these systems tell us there's something wrong with us, mm-hmm. that we're not enough, right? That if you aren't performing at the unrealistic expectation that these systems want us to perform, um, that means that you are not working hard enough. Um, this ties back in with what we were um, touching upon earlier about the individualistic emphasis of these systems as well. It it just places a lot of the pressure and the responsibility on the individual. It tells the individual, you're not working hard enough. And this is why um, 
you should feel ashamed. This is why you should blame yourself. And now you should apologize for your mistakes when in fact, we are not mistakes, you know, we're human. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I think that relates back to one of your earlier points about treating ourselves with compassion when we notice the effects of some of these systems and being able to take a step back and recognize the variety of influences that have contributed to us responding and living in the ways that we do, as opposed to taking this more individualistic responsibility and over-assuming responsibility on an individual level, because in many ways, there are certain structures and systems in place in our society that make it really hard to do things differently there, I mean, there are way too many things to name, right? But the traditional eight to five work schedule, like that does not work for everyone. This mindset and mental health of back-to-back 50-minute sessions um, with these short breaks in between, the lack of leave that people get for bereavement or parenting. I mean, just so many things, right, that we could point to in terms of policies and systems that that do make it hard to, to again, engage in some of these action steps. And so I do think it's possible, it's important to take a step back and recognize, okay, here are all the different layers that make it hard for me to do something different um, so that it's not so blamey towards ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do think that also relates back to the over-apology in that sometimes we flat out over-apologize and other times the over-apology is more subtle. We give a lot of caveats before we speak. We soften our language in a way that sometimes makes it a watered down version of the truth or a less direct expression of what we need or what our preferences are. And so I think catching that too, because that can get sneaky. It can sneak up on us. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there are ways, as you said, that we can reframe things so that we aren't engaging in this kind of mentality that is very individualistic and and self-blaming. Definitely. Yeah. And I don't know about you, especially as a woman myself, catching myself in those moments where I'm saying, oh, I kind of feel like this, but I don't know. Do you Mm -hmm. mind if, you know, subtle subtleties in our language, they do build up. Um, They stem from a place of, you know, maybe I'm not allowed to have needs, maybe other people's needs are greater than mine, and Mm -hmm. they deserve more space. Um, And that impact, it's like a cycle, right? Mm -hmm. Impacts how we feel and how we feel impacts our language. So these slight changes, and as you said, so brilliantly remembering that it's not you know, we're not alone in this, that we have a collective, um, and that even though these systems are strong, um, our relationships and and the collective is stronger. Mm -hmm. Right. And it is, it is together that we can change some of these systems and structures and, Mm -hmm. and support each other in, in the way we use language too, because I, I do think that in addition to perhaps not necessarily 
putting blame where blame is due in the way that some of the way we use language can, can foster. I think it also can sometimes minimize the chances that we get our needs met. Like if we're softening our language, if we're watering it down, people don't have the opportunity to respond to the full depth and breadth of the truth of our experience. And so it, sets us up in many ways to not be fully validated and acknowledged. And so, like you said, it's a cycle. And then if someone's not quite validating us fully or not quite getting what we're saying, we then pull back, we feel more shame, we soften more, we express less, they then validate us less. And so, so it is very interconnected in terms of how it affects us on an individual level and then a relational level and then a more collective community-based level. Absolutely. Yeah. And it brings me right back to what you were saying earlier about suppressing our emotions, right? And that's in the cycle as well, where we recognize that we're not in tune with our emotions because we haven't given value to our emotions. Um, And so, yeah, that impacts our language. It impacts how people behave towards us. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I don't know about other strategies that you have found helpful, Laura, but another one that, that occurred to me while you were talking in terms of the collective nature of this healing and ways in which we can lean into each other is that for me personally, it helps to think about people who I really admire and and to watch them. And one concrete example I can give of this, again, as I've said, I'm, I'm very sensitive. I, I tear up very easily. And from a lot of my life got the message that that was not okay. I had this teacher actually in fourth grade who I think had good intentions, but he would give me a prize if I made it through the day without crying. So as you can see, that really made me internalize that the, or not made me, it contributed to the internalization of this message that there was something wrong with me, that crying was wrong. And, and when you're someone who is emotionally sensitive and can't really totally control how you experience emotions, that's very confusing and, and very destabilizing. And so that this has taken a lifetime to sort of work through. And so I remember in one of my first silent meditation retreats, there were all of these Dharma teachers who would get tearful when they were talking. And I had just never really seen that even in my clinical psychology training and mental health background. Like there was just this permission given to be tearful in a way that no one judged them outwardly. It was, it, it fostered intimacy and it fostered connection and it helped their messages and their talks land and resonate with people in a really deep and meaningful way. And so that is something that I hold in my mind often in the spirit of, yeah, thinking through my own values and recalling times in my life where I felt very connected to someone and what contributed to that or who's someone I admire and and how do they manage their emotions? I think it can just be helpful to have those examples in our lives as inspiration and as a reminder that it is possible. And there are people who are going against the grain of what these systems are teaching. That's beautiful. I think that gives me so much hope that, you know, society is shifting 
and that emotions are not bad because emotions can give us so much depth and so many layers to our experiences, right? I think that's just so stunning what you just shared. Well, it was, it was a really remarkable experience. And it's so interesting to me that it was so remarkable, right? That it was such a profound experience for me to see these people allowing themselves to be tearful. And mm-hmm. like you said, allowing it to add to the depth of their work and to guide them in, in a way that I think was probably very meaningful for them to not feel as though they needed to suppress that part that was yeah. coming through in terms of their emotions. And I think also really resonant for for the audience, the people listening. So, so I do think that these, these models, these um, templates, so to speak, like are out there and exist and, and we can do that for each other, right? Like we can give more permission to each other, the more that we live out some of these different ideals and values and beliefs. And I, again, that comes back to the power of the collective. Like when you see other people around you that you love and admire and respect who aren't perpetuating the status quo, it can be really inspiring and it can give us more courage because it can be hard to, to go against the grain and it doesn't mean it's risk-free or that there aren't consequences at times. And I think that's another probably important side to lift up too, that it's not like either of us is saying that railing against these systems, you know, creates rainbows and sunshine and things are automatically wonderful. Like we can be met with resistance. We can be met with judgment. We can be met with consequences. And that's a reality. Yeah, absolutely. And at the same time, you know, it is so worthwhile, even if we don't immediately see the benefits of it. Um, I am really reminded by um, an intervention that I was involved in a couple of years ago. I was working for an ADHD research lab, and one of our interventions was a classroom um, a classroom program to, uh, I guess, foster inclusion and diversity, especially for children who have, um, yeah, different neurobiological or neurodiversities in the classroom. Um, And one of the things that we taught teachers explicitly is some strategies that show that they're human, Mm. that show that they have struggles. And this can be as easy as, you know, making a mistake on the whiteboard and pointing out like, whoops, I made a mistake. I'm only human. Mm -hmm. Or even talking about, oh, I, I used to struggle with math when I was younger too. Um, And again, I think that, yeah, some of these little interactions where if you feel like you are in a role model position um, and utilize that position to show the people that are looking up to you that, you know, it's okay to have emotions. It's actually beautiful to have emotions. It's okay to make mistakes. I think that absolutely goes against um, these systems of the patriarchy, of capitalism, to maintain this illusion of perfection that in reality doesn't exist, right? It's an unrealistic expectation. Absolutely. And that's not something that is necessarily acknowledged or admitted, right? There is this expectation of the impossible 
in many of these systems. And I, I'll find it and put it in the episode notes, but I became aware of this book that was written by a medical doctor who talked a lot about mistakes and medical error in, in medicine and how there is such shame around making mistakes in, in medicine. And again, of course, the consequences can be very high for mistakes in the medical profession. And yet mistakes are going to happen because we're human beings. And so, and in many ways, when we shame people for making mistakes, we actually make it less likely that people are going to admit them, which then makes it harder to repair afterwards. And so, so she talks a lot about this in, in her book. And I think it's really valuable to think about how when we uphold this impossible standard of perfection, we're not only creating more anxiety and potential shame when people are human and make mistakes, but we're also making it less likely that people can then learn from them, can repair. So it's, again, that ripple effect of a whole lot of problems that can stem from from this ideal. Yeah. Exactly. And it affects our mental health so deeply because when people do make mistakes and are shamed for making mistakes, it transforms the message from you made a mistake into you are a mistake. Um, And I think that's really dangerous territory, especially for teenagers, especially for um, people that, yeah, maybe have had those messages all their lives. Mm -hmm. Well, and Laura, as, as you know, it's so common as human beings when something in life doesn't work out or we're met with a stressor or a challenge or a trauma to turn inward and blame ourselves. It's such a human way that we respond. Sometimes it can give us a sense of control. Like, okay, if I'm to blame, then that means maybe I can prevent it from happening in the future. So it's like we already live as humans in a way that self-blame is such a natural human inclination and tendency that we don't necessarily need to exacerbate that and make it easier for people to blame themselves because we already, I think many of us anyway, over blame ourselves for things that are not our fault. And again, this is not to say that we're condoning behaviors that harm other people. Of course, it is very important to hold ourselves accountable. And yet there is this fine line between sort of owning what is ours to own and over assuming responsibility for something that's systemic or again, is an internalization of some kind of unrealistic expectation or standard. Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing that up because I I do also hear it in clients um, a lot when people are struggling with mental health issues, people are feeling like they're not achieving is that they need to work harder or they just need to like pull up their bootstraps and, you know, get it together and keep trying. Um, And I really like how you pointed out the fact that there are so many other things that are operating there that are often invisible unless we really consciously draw our attention to them. Um, Capitalism and the patriarchy is so inherently tied in, as you said, with other systems, right, with oppression um, and on the flip side of oppression with privilege. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the time when we see someone's quote unquote successes, perhaps it's not only hard work and, you know, blood, sweat and tears 
layers that got there. Um, There's so many things that come into play as well. So recognizing that, you know, it's not as simple as hard work equals quote unquote success Mm -hmm. um, is really, really important because I think in a lot of ways, this shifts the blame, as we said before, back on the individual. Mm -hmm. Um, And it makes people more likely to start internalizing that blame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I do think it also leads us back to this theme of comparative, competitive culture where we make assumptions based on what is outwardly obvious. As you're saying, there's a lot that we don't see that we can't see that we can't know. And yet sometimes we operate with these presumptions that lead us to think, oh, that's so much easier for them than it is for me, or Mm -hmm. to just feel less than because we're basing our judgments, our interpretations, our narratives on what is visible and, or what people are putting out. Right. Cause as we're Mm -hmm. saying, we're not rewarded for being vulnerable. We're not really rewarded that often for talking about our struggles. And, and in fact, we're often judged for it and told that it's unprofessional. Right. So Oftentimes that's not what people are putting out on social media. That's not what they're leading with during a morning walk around the pond or a dinner date, right? Like it's, um, so I think also to keep in mind that we only know a slice of what other people are going through. And I know that can sound kind of trite, but at the same time, and here, maybe I am also now like caveating and over-explaining myself and, and doing the thing that we're talking about. See, it happens. We all internalize it. Um, but yeah, but that, that it is, um, yeah, it's just so present. And, and there are just a lot of ways that we can, when we pay attention, can wake up to the ways in which many of these systems and structures contribute to our distress and the impacts, the negative impacts of some of these themes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Laura, I know there's so much more we could say about these topics. And in fact, each theme that we're lifting up could be a podcast episode or book in and of itself. And unfortunately, we are nearing the end of our time. So I'm curious to ask you, as we work towards wrapping up, are there any themes we didn't quite dive that deeply into today that you at least want to name or acknowledge as part of the impacts that you've encountered, you've seen other people encounter related to the patriarchy and capitalism? Yeah, that's a great question. And as you said, I think, you know, we could, we could have so many more conversations and podcasts about um, how the patriarchy and how capitalism really affects our daily lives and affects our psychology, because it's it's impossible, I think, to separate that out from the way we exist. You know, these structures are so embedded within us and it touches on so many different aspects of our lives. Um, you know, we, we kind of touched lightly on this idea of perfectionism and how um, things are in hierarchies um, and exist in hierarchies and how that really affects how we behave um, day to day. I think we also, um, alluded to but didn't get a chance to touch on how um, this really the patriarchy really affects women and how you know um, women are treated for the 
yeah, just awful acts that, um, you know, violence against women or other um, awful acts that um, are perpetuated against them and how um, the patriarchy really, you know, it, it, it blames women um, for a lot of these things. I think uh, you and I in an earlier conversation touched on, um, you know, how these themes and, and these systems really make it so hard for us to prioritize ourselves, prioritize our needs, um, set boundaries for our needs and our behavior as well as other people's behaviors um, and how we constantly feel like we have to perform and produce. And so all of these themes and, and yeah, topics are really kind of intertwined with each other. Um, but again, I think that um, it touches on so many aspects of our lives. And so uh, one thing that I really wanna emphasize is that this idea of unlinking these systems to our psychology and resisting these systems is something that's an ongoing process. It's something that can't be done, you know, in a day, in a week, um, in a year, but it's something that's a lifelong journey. And so as this journey unfolds, I have found it in my personal life, um, to unpackage more and more themes and to think critically about how these things really affect me and affect the people around me. So yeah, I just challenge listeners um, to think about these things as if um, it's not just a lesson to be learned once, but something that affects the rest of our lives. I think that's such a great point, Laura. And it reminds me of this metaphor that is often used related to values, how living a life that is aligned with our values is like following a direction on a compass. We don't arrive mm -hmm. at North or South or East or West. It's not a final destination. We keep redirecting ourselves towards that point on the compass and we veer off track or we're not aware of being off track. And so it's this continual bringing ourselves back, turning our minds, as you said, unpacking, being more attuned to the ways in which we're affected, because oftentimes it's very subtle and everyone around us is affected too. And so sometimes we just get very used to how things are. And so I very much agree that it is a lifelong practice. And for me, the fact that we are all affected by these systems, that it's a lifelong practice brings, I think, as we talked about earlier, a sense of solidarity, a sense of we can really support each other in enhancing our awareness of the ways in which we're affected in supporting each other in engaging in behaviors and activities that foster the deconditioning that help us rail against these systems. So for me, it's very hope instilling to think about this being a part of our, of our shared humanity. And it is a way to have compassion for ourselves that because of how embedded these themes are, because of how intertwined they are by virtue of merely existing on the planet and being human, it is going to be a lifelong process. And, and as we said in the beginning, it's not just these two systems that affect us. There are so many. Mm -hmm. so. Absolutely. I love that you brought in the compassion bit too. I think that's so important in this process and it's a radical act against these systems. 
And Laura, I, I feel like that might be a, a really nice way to wrap up our conversation is talk a bit more about self-compassion. And so I'm wondering if you have any personal examples, words of wisdom to share around this idea of self-compassion, what it means to you specifically with respect to undoing the effects of patriarchy and capitalism or any specific ways that you practice self-compassion in your own life that, that you'd be willing to lift up and share. Yeah, absolutely. Self-compassion has been transformative for me. Um, I learned about self-compassion probably about three years ago. Um, and yeah, it has really changed my life upside down because I think before I learned about it, I was very much like an achievement oriented person, very competitive, and I still am quite achievement oriented. I don't think that, um, you know, being um, goal oriented is mutually exclusive to being compassionate to oneself. Um, but for me, I think self-compassion is just being able to recognize that we are doing the best that we can do um, and recognizing that there is so much value in forgiving ourselves for, you know, whatever it is that we're struggling with, not uh, feeling like we don't measure up um, to our expectations, maybe feeling like, um, you know, that we're not uh, performing or whatever it is, feeling like we don't measure up to other people's expectations. Um, I think that self-compassion and self-forgiveness is, as I said, a radical act against these systems because these systems, what's at the root of so many of our systems that are problematic in society is that they tell us that we're not enough the way that we are, mm -hmm. that naturally there's something that's wrong with us and that we need to be boxed up and pushed, you know, into certain directions. And so I really think that at the end of the day, self-compassion and self-worth is so inherently linked together because if we tell ourselves, I forgive you for not measuring up to these systems and what these systems tell us to do. And I forgive you for being yourself. You know, it's, it's beautiful. It's like an unapologetic um, mm. blossoming of who we truly are. Um, and as I said, resisting all the things that tell us that we're not enough the way we are. I so love how you phrased that as an unapologetic blossoming of who we truly are and how that serves us and the world around us. And we talk a lot about how individual healing and collective healing are so intertwined. And I do think it is a radical act of resistance and of healing to have a more self-compassionate stance. And as, as we all know, the more compassion we can have for ourselves, the more we can have for other people as well. And I also really love how you described how self-compassion is less about what you're doing and more about how you're doing it, that you can use and a self-compassionate stance to approach any activity or any thought pattern or any behavior or any emotion. And it can really be very integrated. And I think one brief 
anecdote I'll share is that oftentimes when I talk about self-compassion with people, there are a lot of misconceptions about what self-compassion is. And of course, this could be another whole podcast in and of itself. And one in particular I want to share is that I'll often hear people say, well, self-compassion is so cheesy or it self-compassion is about painting a rosier picture of something than it really is. And I don't know what you think about this, Laura, but for me, I really think about self-compassion as really an ability to tune in to the reality of what is and what is present and the true reality of what is and what is present, not the distortions that we're taught to believe or, um, so for me, it, it's it's about acknowledging the reality and all the colors and shades of the reality and, and not distorting it. And I think it also is about acknowledging our, our humanity. So this shared humanity piece that we've talked so much about today. So I, I do think that when we engage in, in self-compassion, we're not trying to pretend or make something other something different than what is, we're trying to get at the kernel of truth and emphasize that. Absolutely. Yeah. I just love how you said it really acknowledges our humanity because I think it's so true. We are fully and messily and beautifully human um, and self-compassion absolutely acknowledges that and it cradles that. It Mm -hmm. values that. Mm Mm-hmm. And as you said, it's so intertwined with self-worth. And I've been thinking a lot lately about how self-worth ties into loving all parts of ourselves and having compassion for all parts of ourselves, not just the parts that are easy, quote unquote, easier to have compassion for and how that's part of our work as humans is to find a way to hold space for for all parts and all emotions. So exactly. Yes. Well, Laura, before we wrap up, any final words that that you'd like to share? I want to make sure I'm, again, railing against the the patriarchy and capitalism by creating space (laughs) and not hurrying us through. But any, any final thoughts you'd like to share? I think the last thought that I want to share with listeners is that um, it's okay to not be perfect and to sometimes fall into these quote unquote traps of the patriarchy and of capitalism. And I think we've kind of alluded to this um, and threaded this in to our conversation, Um, but I just wanna name it and make it really clear um, and say, yeah, because these systems are so powerful and so strong, it is expected um, that we won't be able to resist it all the time. Mm -hmm. And again, bringing that self-compassion piece back, right? Um, Recognizing that we are human, that these systems are big, and that yes, we can find healing and grounding in the collective. We can find healing and grounding in attuning with ourselves. But sometimes, you know, it, yeah, it, it, it might not always look like resistance all the time. Um, You know, you might want to take a break from this and that's totally okay too. I think that even lifelong learners of people who acknowledge these systems and try to untangle these systems from, 
you know, their psychology and their behavior also sometimes stumble. Um, and so again, forgiving yourself for that is so imperative. Thank you so, so, so much, Laura, for, for sharing these last words, because I do think it is a really important reminder that even when we take a break from the resistance, that doesn't mean we're a part of the problem. It just means that we're doing what we need to do to keep doing this work for ourselves and other people. And taking that break is also part of the resistance, so to speak. So it doesn't, resistance doesn't necessarily need to look homogenous or the same all the time. And like you said, it doesn't have to be every single second of every single day. Exactly. It doesn't have to be perfect, right? Which is another lie that these systems tell us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Laura, I am just so grateful to you for your wisdom and your heart space and your willingness to share so much information and guidance on social media and on podcasts and in the workshops and talks that you give and just so grateful that you are willing to come on the podcast and have this conversation that is a conversation that is so important, I know, to both of us and something that we think warrants so much more attention than it often gets. So I just so admire you for all the contributions you've given to the planet and that you continue to give and that I know you will continue to all of the contributions that I know lie ahead in terms of your work. So Thank you so, so much. Deep bow to you. Thank you. I'm blushing. I don't know. People can't see me, but I'm like, (laughs) I'm so warm right now. The feeling is so mutual. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. And I have learned so much from this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave us a review. If you'd like to reach out or connect more, please follow me on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next time.